Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Today, Jeff Strakas joins us. He is the Director of Operations and Wine Growing for Onyx Wines. Chances are you have heard me talk about these wines, especially if you have stopped in store anytime over the last couple of years. They are a beautiful operation, and Jeff does a great job shining a light on everything that they are doing. We really hope that this comes through, and we hope that you enjoy the show just as much as we enjoyed doing it. Cheers. Hey, we are live. Jeff, how you doing, bud? I'm awesome. Thanks for coming out here. Well, thanks for coming on with us. This is a busy time of the year. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, been up uh, pretty early. We were actually harvesting uh, a bunch of Syrah off of our Willow Creek property this morning. So that's still finishing up, but happy I can join you over here. Yeah, yeah and Jeff is with Onyx, and kind of give us a little information about what you do for onyx sure so um you know i'm actually about to hit my 10-year anniversary uh, this coming january so done a little bit of everything here started as associate winemaker but now i've moved up into uh, director of operations and wine growing mm. so basically running all of the uh, business and hospitality side as well as both of our estate vineyards here so you have the dress up you know, Jeff, and then the dirty boots, Jeff. You do a little bit of both. Uh, I'm kind of notorious for underdressing, even on the uh, business side. So it's uh, what we used to call uh, winemaker uh, chic, which is basically uh, playing the game where people aren't sure if you're homeless or <laughs> somewhere. Play the homeless or hipster game, right? <laughs> I, I only am clean shaven because we did a dinner in the vines uh, in the middle of the vineyard on Saturday night, so two nights ago. Otherwise, I had a uh, all the long scraggly grays coming out and uh, <laughs> hair that badly needed a trimming. Um, a question we ask everybody, I think we pretty much start every podcast with, what got you into wine? How did it start? Because you said you were from the East mm -hmm. Coast, right? So I'm uh, one of your classic second career guys in wine. I was just fortunate enough to realize early on my interest uh, in my first career. I started out in uh, New England, so I grew up in Connecticut went to engineering school in the Massachusetts, uh, got a chemical engineering degree, ended up, oddly for today's day and age, I worked in uh, viral vaccine development for <laughs> six years. Wow. So did scale up and stuff for that. But you know, in your early 20s, you have all those dumb conversations with all your buddies as you get drunk and you're like, man, if I could do it all over again, <laughs> I'd do this or that. And I'm kind of that jerk friend who's like, dude, you're 22 you don't have a wife or even a dog like you can do what you want tomorrow <laughs> so i had uh, told people uh, i really had a lot of interest in trying to get into wine just because i'd taken a bunch of trips out to wine country uh periodically split a timeshare with a friend of mine out in uh, napa and uh just real i started realizing you know this isn't very far away from the fermentation science that i kind of do Mm -hmm. And eventually you tell enough people something that you'd be embarrassed to not at least try it. So I ended up uh, getting the pharma company I worked for to uh, pay for just some prereq courses that I knew I needed to get into UC Davis's uh, master's program. Sweet. 
Uh, and I mean, it was just a no-brainer signature for them because I just wanted to take uh, cheap community college courses <laughs> instead of like all my buddies who wanted you know super expensive stuff at UPenn. So they're just like, yeah, whatever, we'll pay for whatever you want. And I ended up uh, you know filling all those prereqs, sending in my application, and as luck would have it, I didn't even realize uh, I had the perfect background for it because they want people who can generate uh, research or publishable uh, research papers. Mm-hmm. So I ended up uh, getting accepted and getting offered a scholarship to cover out-of-state tuition uh, to go out there, which wow. made the decision pretty easy. So one day I go up to my boss and uh, told him I'm quitting. And when I explained why, he's like, well, you're the first person I'm not going to try to talk out of uh, quitting. Cause, <laughs> you know, usually in uh, that industry and this industry, someone's quitting to get a 3% raise, you know, a mile down the road or something. And in this case, it was, uh, you know, totally different career, a great opportunity. So uh, I embarked and drove all my possessions uh, 3,000 miles down uh, Route 80 from Philadelphia out Hell to yeah. uh, Davis, California. That's awesome. That's, that's, <laughs> like, that's just like start you know you, you the, the idea that you wanted to get the wine like I mean you said you went out to California and you know you, you hung out shared a timeshare is that what, or something uh, that like, was what? you know a place to crash where you visit a million but wineries the wine part of it like mm-hmm. did you drink wine when you were back east was I mean mm-hmm. you, so started getting into it in college uh, you know really it branched out of beer pretty quickly and you know drank uh, wine drank uh, spirits really mm-hmm. got into unfortunately I got into high-end whiskey in college because that was before <laughs> people knew what Pappy Van Winkle was and uh, I can say I was part of a group that regularly got a case discount on buying it because wow. it was our regular poker night whiskey wow. you know a good poker night if you can imagine too. 20 years ago when stuff was uh, you know actually available yeah. <laughs> but uh, so you know started br- just getting into different things um, the summer after my freshman year I worked at a super high-end hotel out in uh, Cape Cod and I uh, very quickly realized room service is just a horrible job. Uh, <laughs> really, anything with split shifts, working morning and uh, evening yeah. with breaks in the middle. Not my uh, ideal cup of tea. So I politicked my way into creating a bar back job there to support all of the restaurants on site. And one of my gigs was pulling all the expensive, fancy uh, French bottles out of the cellar. And that's where you start asking yourselves, like, well, what is the difference between this Behringer White Zinfandel and this uh, Chateau Latour uh, Pouligny Montrachet? Um, not that I would have pronounced it that way at the time. But. They're big differences. Yeah, <laughs> just just slight differences. Uh, color aside, I know I just named a uh, pink wine and a uh, very expensive Chardonnay. But <laughs> details. Uh, oh, speaking of pink. You know, here's your rosé. Um, we sell it. We sell, gosh, every bit of the wines that our distributor carries from you guys. Awesome. And, um, Except we haven't got the new label. We haven't yet. got that new label that yet. That label is beautiful. Uh, but you know, and we've had Drew on the mm-hmm. on the podcast, and he was he was really great. He's one of our first. I think he was one of our first people. He I think. was early on, but yeah. what we did was we uh, we were lucky enough to get tasted on these. You know, very early, right before the pandemic, actually is mm-hmm. is how it happened, and we thought that they were phenomenal. We we loved every. We like the one. styles too like you know there's so many different styles that yeah. you guys put out so many different blends the labeling was great labeling was about amazing it was, it was awesome beautiful we, like you guys are smart in the way the retail part of it <laughs> we, we jumped on we brought everything into the uh to the store that was in our market and then the world shut down and it's a very interesting thing 
trying to sell people wines who they've never heard of before they've Mm -hmm. never seen and they're out of paso and you know that's a growing community and now you know how what do we do with it so we started this podcast and we thought we've got to get drew on here like we have to get him on and let people know and as soon as we did i mean we we blew out everything we had it was crazy we started sending your wine back to california oh Oh my gosh like because they for some reason, there might have been something that you guys had run out of, or something mm-hmm. like that, and they and they, so we were sending your wine back to California. We were like giggling about it <laughs> all like, over. It was um, like, yeah, that, that's was the great. beauty of Florida and California shipping regulations. We're yeah. a little yeah. less strict on alcohol too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we we ship and you ship, and you know it's intermingled, so it's very easy for us to ship out back out to California. But yeah, your blends are so cool. And uh, how many since you're in the vineyards all the time? Mm-hmm. How many varietals do you guys have planted? Uh, we've officially got uh, 20 going right now and just planted our uh, 21st. So we do have a little bit of Roussan now out at our other estate, Kyler Canyon. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, even when I originally moved down here, it was kind of like those life choices, those key moments, right, where I'm like, should I stay up in Napa, get an assistant winemaker job, and talk about 20 different blocks of Cabernet as if they were different varieties, <laughs> or uh, move down to Paso and have the chance to oversee a site that, you know, at the time was growing, I think, uh, 14 different varieties, and now, obviously, we've increased that. Wow, doubled it. Yeah. Man, well, that's what a crazy. great decision. I mean, that 10 years ago, right? Is that when mm-hmm. you. So at that point in time, Paso was not a, a common name, and, and you jumped on it. I mean, we talked about it. This is the reason we came here first, uh, was we love this area. The, the climate is perfect, soil types. I mean, it's, it's a perfect situation for making great and, wine. And again, I think more varietals too. We, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's more varietals grown here, and. You know, you get a you get a little take on each little <laughs> varietal. We saw a varietal yesterday from where was it? Do you remember, Jim? I don't remember. It was a, a Lithuania or something that somebody was messing around with. Oh, right yeah. on. I mean, you definitely get it out here. I mean, well, there's also the game where everyone likes to call varieties by their you know European uh, acronyms. <laughs> like, are you growing Zinfandel or Sorlčanac or you uh, know whatever the yeah. original Croatian term was? But yeah, there's you know, a great history of that in Paso because, quite frankly, we're not as limited by the economics as you would be up north. Absolutely. I mean, I hate to say it, like, at a certain point, if you're paying, you know, $400,000 an acre or whatever to get something planted, this and that, you almost have to grow Cabernet just because of the sale value of that product uh, yeah. once it hits the market. And, you know, having, one, your own property where you're growing things for yourself first and foremost, and two, just being in Paso, which is a lot more open-minded. Uh, you know, I like to joke we're the Languedoc of California, uh, yeah. except then I have to explain <laughs> Languedoc and everything. Else. <laughs> so, a lot of people. <laughs> so it's more of a good joke for myself and no one else. But you know, the main point of that is just we're not constrained by rules. Like, um, yes, I would say your average consumer coming up here generally is looking for things in a Rhone style or sometimes uh, you know a cab-driven base, depending what their past experience with Paso is. But I think the great thing is while they're here, people are super open-minded about trying a Tempranillo-based wine or being like, hey, let's get into Malbec or yeah. God help them if they uh, encounter some of our more old-school places that are growing, you know, Cabernet Pfeffer and uh, Carmenere <laughs> and every other uh, variety under the sun as well. But that's also why I was super excited with our most recent planting way on the west side of this property 
you know, I, I think maybe in some ways the most analogous uh, wine region in the world to Paso is in many ways the Douro Valley in Portugal. Mm. So being able to uh, get some Tariga Nacional, some uh, Suzao, mm. and I know I'm not in any way pronouncing this like someone from Portugal actually would, <laughs> but uh, you know, you, you don't want to hear me try and uh, imitate that accent. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is, you know, you guys do have the mountains and the hills, and um, we always talk about you have uh, 11 sub-AVAs, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you, um, so it gives you like a lot of diversity and um, st styles like the, the you guys have terroir here. I mean, mm -hmm. it is definitely here. You taste it in the wines. You know it. Um, and in, in your vineyards, what is your like soil composition? What do you guys usually, or do you have multiples? Uh, we do have multiples, um, and especially between the two sites. Uh, this property that we're on now, our home estate, uh, Onyx Estate, it's kind of the uh, joining of a couple alluvial fans. Um, you can see right behind me where we're sitting is actually uh, the creek bed here, so uh, Santa Rita Creek right behind me. Lots of cool air comes from the mountains on the west side, and you know, as you guys know, just from uh, living on the east coast in general, uh, heat follows uh, temperature gradients. So mm -hmm. all that cold air sits at the bottom of your house or in your basement. Second story, if you have one, is always way hotter. Uh, you know, same deal out here. In that morning, all of the uh, cool air and fog it comes in through the mountains and just follows all the uh, creeks uh, going east. So we have this channel bringing it straight through. We get this cooling influence every morning and afternoon, and that's what allows us to grow so many varieties anyways uh, and have that range. But, you know, it's just allowed us to really take care of all that on the climate side and um, back to the soil side. So, you know, down by the creek here, just following what creek beds naturally do, we always have a deep alluvium, which means uh, generally you're going to have water much more uh, shallowly. So it's pretty accessible on this property. You have a little more clay content by the creek, which is why we have all of our white varieties planted there. So right in front of us, we have Viognier, Sauvignon Blanc, and then uh, way down that way, some Grenache Blanc. And then we tend to get um, a little more sandstone going north and west on the property. And that's where you'll also see, I'm sure as you guys drove in, you saw some of those big, uh, you know, calcite, uh, you know, limestone shale rocks. Yeah. Uh, so like, you know, there's yeah. a couple over there. The big round. Yeah. Or you see even that uh, piece of it's shale right there, there yeah. with all the uh, fossilized yeah. uh, seashells and scallop shells in there. I mean, everything here was an uh, ancient alluvial seabed. And people forget that basically going out to the Rockies, it all used to be under the ocean. Like, you know, I know guys from two miles east of here, like inland California, who hunt uh, megalodon teeth as like a hobby. <laughs> oh, so you yeah. just think how deep the water had to be to have, so you know, crazy. all these whale bones and giant uh, fish and monster fossils and stuff around. We saw when we drove in, and it, to me it looked like bush vine. Or, mm -hmm. uh, what was that? Yeah, so um, those are head-trained Grenache blocks. Ah, you called it. <laughs> so, um, you know, head-training is something uh, you have to be kind of uh, careful about what you put in there, what varieties you choose, just because you uh, ultimately want something that actually puts out laterals and creates a little shade for itself. And um, Grenache is really good at doing it. As you've driven around Paso, I'm sure you've seen lots of Zinfandel around yeah, here in that style. Yeah. Um, but you don't want something that's sort of vertically trained just because then you won't have very much shade cover and you run the risk of uh, 
sunburning, raisining, you know, whatever level you want to uh, call it at. But uh, yeah, so we're, we've been really excited to use those and uh, those particular blocks um, definitely are able to ripen their uh, rachises, so that internal um, skeleton of the cluster mm -hmm. a lot more. So we actually like to use them. I say we, uh, Drew and Lily <laughs> yeah. and team, uh, <laughs> yeah. love using those for uh, whole cluster fermentations as well. So you can get the uh, stems in there and get a little bit more of that spiciness with I it. I like that one. Yeah. yeah, I like that whole cluster fermentation style. Absolutely. But we're a little wine geeky, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how is harvest going for you? I would imagine by now, you probably have most of the whites, the Viognier's mm -hmm. up and the Sopoc probably. So our last uh, two whites hanging out there, we still have a little bit of Picpool Blanc and Grenache Blanc. Oh. And those are just huge clusters, so they're hmm. kind of late ripeners on the white side. But we've actually picked um, all the Tempranillo for that rosé um, mm -hmm. we were talking about. And uh, on Kyler Canyon Vineyard, our uh, other property, the one that's uh, much more newly replanted since we took it over, we have some very early ripening Grenache just because that's a site at elevation, um, has very steep, uh, thinner soils. It's all decomposed uh, limestone on there. And all of these things just kind of point towards uh, early ripening. So all that Syrah is off as of today, and we just have a little bit of Mouved left out there. Yeah, you said you were here pretty early uh, today. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as you know, today, are you harvesting anything today? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we uh, should be just wrapping up now, picking about uh, uh, somewhere between uh, 10 and 11 tons of Syrah out of the Kyler Canyon estate. Mm -hmm. hmm. So are you doing any night harvesting at all? Uh, we start around three in the morning. So okay. whether you want to call that night well, or I call that night. <laughs> too early for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely picking under lights, um, and that's for two reasons. I mean, one, obviously, you always want to do what's best for the fruit and the wine, and uh, bringing that in cold is definitely better. It keeps the fruit intact. It really limits your breakage, insect, like bee damage. Mm. Um, and beyond that, it's also much better for our guys that are working, too, because uh, it just, even though it doesn't feel like in any way cold right now, the difference between uh, working and sweating really hard and this versus uh, yeah. and the pre-sunrise temperatures, it definitely makes a difference. You always see a noticeable uh, speed decrease uh, once the sun <laughs> is fully up and it starts to warm. And I don't blame them. You know, it's, I'm very no, much a uh, work in the cool uh, myself kind of guy. Yeah. Um, so what, t what, like, what, idea or what time do you think you might be finishing harvest this year like what time do you think you would have it wrapped up just a guess you know uh, we're typically a pretty uh late ripening site um mm -hmm. being that we're down along the creek we get this cool air here so it's usually a safe bet like um you know i tell people our last picks will be the week of halloween typically oh. um and some years like last year where um crop was really light and set thin anyways and we had intense heat we can finish two weeks before that but um, I always give people the late guess so that they're uh, not upset if it takes a long time. <laughs> time, yeah. <laughs> so right out of school, is this the first winery that you came to work for? Um, as I finished school, so I worked at Maryvale during, um, right before my last year in grad school okay. up in uh, St. Helena. Yeah. Then right after finishing, or as I was finishing grad school, I worked at uh, Franciscan in Rutherford. Sure. Um, jumped over, uh, finished school up and worked for uh, Molly Duker out in Australia. Yeah. And then uh, jumped back to Rutherford and worked for Round Pond Estate. 
Um, and that was where I ended up uh, hooking up with uh, Stephen Olson, uh, the family that uh, owns this whole property and really being afforded the chance to come down here and kind of uh, help uh, direct and start up a newer brand. Well, you definitely got some uh, heavy hitters under your belt. Yeah. <laughs> the, the resume is pretty stacked. Uh, and this is, again, this is phenomenal wine. This is a reason we wanted to showcase Paso was there is some really great stuff coming out of here right now. And uh, this is no exception. I, I think that you touched on it earlier. The price per uh, bottle is unbelievable. I mean, the value is there. Uh, and it's not what Paso was at one point in time and thought to be just big, high, flabby cabs or, you know, whatever whatever you were drinking at that point. Now it's much more elegant, refined, beautiful expressions of a ton of different grapes. And you can really showcase who you are and be the artist and put your stamp on that bottle. And uh, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, the wines definitely have a sense of place and style of its own for this region. And we also, you know, one thing we've noticed too is, uh, like, you guys have really done well on like bringing people in you know we, mm -hmm. we see the event spaces we see you know all those things that are going to bring people in and um you know just it's just so pretty out here and the weather's so nice property. and um you know we really love to come out here and and be able to talk to all these winemakers and you know viticulture any, anybody that's in this field we just love so um i'm sure again you're a busy guy <laughs> And, oh, no. uh, happy to be here excited to have the chance and yeah. you know and i think you guys touched on it too and i think a big part of it is you know maybe i've just spent too long on the business side lately but it's kind of the changing nature of what wineries are and how they connect with their customers there was a time you know 10 15 years ago where it literally was just sort of building that palace on the uh, hilltop and people would come because it was there and I think nowadays things are driven in a very different sense. Uh, we pride ourselves on being very deeply connected to our estates and really try to make um, any of our consumer experiences extremely uh, educational, you know, whether you want to call it uh, ecotourism in the broader across the U.S. sense. But even starting um, about nine years ago, I would say uh, I realized uh, it wasn't nearly so interesting just doing tastings off the uh, back uh, patio of uh, Steve Olson's house <laughs> up on the uh, uh, top of the hill there. So instead, I started driving people around in a little uh, Kawasaki mule, you know, a side-by-side -side, yeah. uh, utility vehicle. And basically, as we tasted the wines, making people put their hands on some vines, uh, teaching them just, you know, very basic uh, ampelography and vineyard stuff, and really just trying to be a uh, person through which people could ask any genuine question they ever had about wine. Because I think this industry, more than any other one I've ever seen, does a horrible job of making our own consumers afraid of our product. I agree completely. Like, it, it's almost... It's face-slappingly insulting to me when I watch, like, just someone, uh, you know, be on that snob level about wine with someone room. who's trying to, like, yeah. pay money for wine. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you guys have seen it at some point in stores or restaurants Unfortunately, or I've had to be a part of it. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I come from high-end restaurants. I'm a sommelier, you know, mm -hmm. walking over in a tux and you know white gloves and doing the whole thing and it's like man this sucks you know it's cool <laughs> i love it but it's awful you know and and when we started this podcast we decided you know we wanted to be the absolute opposite of that we wanted to be you know 
kind of more relaxed, chill. We don't script anything. We we go into it, and sometimes we put our foot in our mouth. You know, we've and, said some dumb stuff. And, and I want to be champions of the education of wine and how it's made, and you know, the whole spectrum. What what it's like, you know, for distributors. What it's like, you know, for for you know people like you that are in the vineyards, and what it's like for Drew that's in the winery, and and you know Carrie who has to you know meet us out here early in the morning to you know to do this. So I think that's. A, a lot of people don't know what what you know the whole industry is and when you said you know that whole idea of bringing people out and showing them uh, wineries and giving them that uh, education that's what our customers want when we come out to wine tours and we do them all over the world they love stuff like that if they just go to a tasting room and just have a tasting that was all right mm -hmm. but you know when you they when somebody walks them through the step-by-step -step, and guess what that does that gets them more fired up. Mm -hmm. It gets them to tell their friends, and everybody makes out. You know, so we. Yeah. Well, I um, think wine is just all about community. It's it is. bringing people together, yeah. and you know, getting people to have fun, let their guards down, and just enjoy themselves. Anyways, I mean, absolutely. You know, anyone you bring out here, I certainly hope they're on vacation. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what it's all about. Like, you know, it shouldn't be work. You shouldn't be afraid of saying the wrong thing. There shouldn't be a wrong thing. Like, no. I, I hate the concept that there's secrets in the wine industry. I'm like, we've more or less been doing the same thing for you know uh, a couple thousand years now. If you go back to uh, China and everything, and beyond that, even the technology we discuss as if it were new and hush hush and wine it was all developed you know 20 or 30 years ago for other fruit like the first time someone sees an optical sorter and they're like oh my god this is new i'm like eh, they used it like 30 years ago for blueberries we're just kind of behind <laughs> yeah. the eight ball here yeah <laughs> in this business they are pretty interesting i do love looking i know maybe i'm it geeky, is cool but I do no, like, oh no cool. no That's i think amazing. it's awesome <laughs> i just mean i i just like purporting it as if it were like this new, new manufactured thing, technology new. i mean we have this brand new technology that only we have you gotta check it out <laughs> no, trust me you don't have to worry about uh, geekiness with technology with me. I, my uh, One of my classes at UC Davis, like we took a tour of the uh, local Budweiser factory. And when I was walking by their uh, cleaning skid in the background, I may have been overheard going, ooh, a Tuchenhagen valve. <laughs> and my professor had to explain mix-proof valves and uh, cleaning to everyone there. And I'm like, eh, I'll just shut up. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's awesome, man. So, and again, you guys, uh, the winery itself is at Tin Can? Is uh, right? Yeah, so Tin City. Tin City, I'm yep. sorry. So uh, Tin City is um, this whole urban winery enclave Very cool. uh, just south of downtown Paso, right off the highway, super easy to get to. And, uh, um, you know, it's where we have our main tasting room and the production facility. But, you know, the great thing is you can literally park your car and spend all day there. Yeah. And there's 25 wineries, uh, you know, a cidery, a brewery, or maybe two breweries now. Um, and then, uh, I mean, there's an incredible um, pasta manufacturer. There's a restaurant, that. there's food trucks, and uh, don't forget the sheep's milk ice cream. That's great, too. Ooh, wow. So we got to run out there. Yeah, yeah, there's no shortage of uh, stuff to do uh, while you're out there. Well, we've been so damn busy on this trip, and everyone's been talking about Ten City, and we're like, well, we're going to get there. And then we, we drove into it today, mm -hmm. and we're like, 
oh, so we're making time for this tonight. This is yeah. what we're going <laughs> to do. We're, our last, when we're done our last podcast, that's where we're going to head. Absolutely. So, uh, again, thank you so much for coming on. You touched on it a minute ago, uh, and I'm going to reiterate. I, I think it's less about what's in your glass and more who you uh, spend that bottle with. And I can't thank you enough for uh, spending some time with us today. No, thanks for uh, coming out here and being you know, part of the solution to wine's problem. Which is, uh, <laughs> but let's give out all the information to people. Please. Let's uh, not treat them like they're idiots or can't possibly understand what we're doing with wine. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're here to make friends and uh, build community. So. Absolutely. And tell uh, everyone where they can find you on uh, social media, Instagram, uh, wherever. Yeah, absolutely. So just uh, look up uh, at Onyx Wines. Uh, so O-N-X. Uh, there's no Y in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can find us at uh, onyxwines.com. Uh, all pretty simple and consistent that way. Awesome. All right. Well, thank <laughs> you, Jeff. Cool. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. You too. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.